uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, Joshua chapter 6, Joshua that sixth book of the Bible, and there's a pew Bible, or should be one nearby in the end of the pew if you uh, uh, don't, want, don't have one handy with you. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity we had last week to hear God's word about the, the harvest, the harvest of the fruit of, God's, of God bringing people to himself, uh, bringing people to salvation, and our need to, through the transforming work of that gospel, to participate, our opportunity to participate in that harvest. And uh, it, it may have seemed last week like a significant detour from what we're going through in the book of Joshua, but I think as we'll see today, the messages that we heard last week about God's kingdom advancing, uh, God knocking down the, the gates of hell as his kingdom advanced, the, the need for the message to go forth because of the judgment and, and wrath of God upon sin in our world, and the reality of his grace in saving and redeeming people to come to himself, are all present right here for us again this week in Joshua and in this story of the Battle of Jericho. Certainly one of the most familiar stories uh, to many in the Bible. And as I said, flows right along with what we were talking about last week as we're going to see God knocking down the walls, bringing in His wrath to bear, and at the same time displaying His majestic grace in this battle of Jericho. So I invite you all to stand with me. We'll just read uh, portions of Joshua chapter 6. Uh, we won't leave you standing too long, but we stand in, in recognition and in honor of God's Word and its truth in our lives. I'll start with verse 1 of Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And then jumping on down to verse 15, and they have begun to do this process just instructed by the Lord. We now come to that seventh day. Verse 15 says, On the seventh day they rose early at the day, dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Jump into verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown 
As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You may be seated. Oh, Father, we praise you for this, your word, and for the places where it speaks to us of power, for the places where it speaks to us even of your disturbing wrath, and for the places it speaks to us of your delightful grace. We ask that you would allow us to see and embrace and be transformed by all of these things today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I believe it was the French peas in the VeggieTales movie who once so famously sang from atop a cartoon version of Jericho's walls, keep walking, but you won't break down our wall. Keep walking, but she isn't going to fall. It seems to me your brains are very small to think walking will be knocking down our wall. Well, what the French peas deem as not so sensible for us, so does our culture, so does a portion of our own hearts, even if we've put our trust in Christ. And that is that it doesn't always seem like the best thing, like the smartest thing to really follow God through faith, to really walk with Him. To really trust that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. It's interesting this passage presents to us really three realities and those realities from three different vantage points. You have the Israelites that after being put in a place of dependence, you remember from our Joshua 5 passage and reminded of how desperately dependent upon God they are, now are being allowed to go forth in this tremendous display of power. We see them witnessing the power of God going forth. We see the people inside Jericho, the Canaanites, 
witnessing and experiencing what can only be described as the horrific wrath of God coming upon them. And we see simultaneously in the same passage, taking place at the same time, God's amazing, protecting, loving grace displayed to Rahab. This is a passage that takes us all over the radar in experiencing God and understanding how He works. And so today, we want to look at it and see what God has to teach us about these realities. If you want to follow along in your worship guide, you can in the back portion of it. Towards the back page is a section of sermon notes. And, and, and I, I've summarized it just this way, as simple, simplified as it may sound, that God's calling us as we hear this passage today to worship God. And, and I mean that in the broadest sense, to, to be more surrendered, to be more desirous to seek Him in our lives, to celebrate and praise Him. Why? Precisely because God's kingdom advances with power, with wrath, and with grace. We, as believers today, struggle with all three of these realities. We struggle with the idea of power because even as we heard last week, it's nice to have a missions conference and be reminded of how God's power is going forth. Uh, It probably didn't take us a day or two into this week, and we probably had all experienced a number of indications that, that it felt not only like God's power and God's kingdom were, weren't really advancing, but, but they might at best be going sideways. It even feels sometimes like it's going backwards, His power. This passage tells us it's going forward. God is in forward motion with His power. And it's not just that, but it doesn't often feel the Christian life very powerful. It feels a lot more like weakness. feels weakness to take time out of our schedule to reach out to those around us and seek to live missionally as we talked about last week. It feels weak to experience the shame and maybe rejection of talking to somebody in our family or in our workplace about who Christ is and to have them reject that or be indifferent to it. It feels like weakness, not power. We struggle to see the power of the kingdom. We, we also certainly wrestle with this message of wrath, and we, we haven't really tackled it in detail up to this point in, in Joshua. And, of course, we're going to see more of God's display of his judgment, his power in that way through his wrath. But we're, if we're honest, uh, more than a little bit embarrassed by this idea that God judges and that God is actually pouring out His judgment upon sin. This isn't a popular message in our day, is it? It's kind of the skeleton in the closet of the Christian faith. We struggle to believe it. And we struggle to share it in a world that certainly doesn't want to hear that message. And we also struggle, although it may seem more winsome and warm to us, to really receive the message of grace that's stated in this passage, to see what Rahab was seeing and experiencing, that God's promises are are absolutely true, and I can bank on them, and I can put my life in His hands, and He's trustworthy, and He loves me, and He cares for me in every way, that His grace is sufficient to shield and protect me even from the wrath we just were 
discussing. So this is tough stuff for us to digest. And before we even get to talking about power, wrath, and grace that we want to tackle today, we also want to take a look again, we may have mentioned this earlier in our series through Joshua, at the connection between God's sovereign working and our responsibility, between his miraculous power and the means by which he brings that about. And this is what I'm, I'm talking about here. It's this question of, is the Christian life primarily let go and let God? Or if it's going to be, it's up to me. Probably each one of us has kind of a default setting. And maybe it's informed in some part by our study of the Bible or preaching and teaching that we've heard. It's important for us to take a look at at this reality because as we saw last week, speaking of missionaries, one great missionary uh, said this about God's working. He said, ask great things of God, attempt great things for God. And that's really the biblical position, isn't it? That it's not simply let go and let God. If that's all it is, it starts to sound like this. Uh, Let go and let God says, hey, I believe in God's sovereignty, and I believe he works miraculously, so I'm sure he's going to make me more holy without me having to lift a finger or exert any effort. Uh, He'll probably allow our church to grow just fine without us uh, planning or pursuing any sort of evangelism or outreach strategy. He'll fix my marriage or my friendship without me having to actually go through forgiveness and reconciliation. Surely he'll take care of that. On the flip side, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Uh, It comes with this approach that, again, says, hey, uh, it seems in the Bible like these people are responding. Right? We see in Jericho both things happening. God's knocking down a, a wall. God's displaying his power. At the same time, he's calling upon his people to march around, to blow trumpets, and to storm in and fight the battle. Both things are taking place. But the perspective certainly predominant in our culture, and it infiltrates our church mindset, is that if it's going to be, it's up to me. I, I get rid of this chronic area of sin. Just I just need to try more in this area. I just need to work harder in this area, and I'll be able to get through it. If we just get together a strategic plan for outreach, or, or if we get that, that land and that building we've been praying about, then, then everything will go forth in exactly the way we want to see it happen. If I go and we as a couple go to the right counselor or read the right book, then everything will be fixed in our relationship. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And I just want us to have in mind, again, as we continue to walk through Joshua, and we see it displayed so abundantly in this passage, that God's message is he is absolutely sovereign, and he's absolutely working out his powerful workings through miracles and he's absolutely desiring for us to respond in every way possible and he's bringing his kingdom about through the means of his people and his church walking faithfully with him they're both true let's take a look at what this passage then has to say with that in mind about god's power 
I mean, this is another one of those passages that you got to somehow kind of wipe your mind uh, uh, free of everything you know because we all know the wall is going to come down. If you've ever been around the Bible or any Christian community anywhere, you've probably heard this story. If nothing else, you've watched the French peas on VeggieTales and you know that the wall is coming down. But we need to remember that they, they're trusting God. They know he's going to do a work. But this is a massive thing that God does. And, and I want us to see how amazing it is. It, it talks about it certainly in our passage because the Old Testament people, there's only a couple of ways that they could see of getting inside Jericho. Got to go under that wall. Got to go over that wall. Got to figure out some kind of Trojan horse deal and sneak your way in. Uh, we had references last week, the Lord of the Rings. You know, all you got to do is watch that Two Towers movie, the Helm's Deep battle. It ain't easy to get through a big, thick wall, right? It's a tough thing to do. And yet God does it. And he wants to display, what you know, what is all of this mention about sevens, about walking around seven times and uh, uh, taking on the seventh day to walk around seven times? You see it there in verses 15 and following. The biblical... Number seven is just indicating the idea of perfection and the idea of God's perfection. And it's just saying that God is doing this work. This isn't just a military operation by the Israelites or even a military operation that they're getting some sort of motivation or mojo from God to go fight boldly. God's doing it. He's going to do it. He's telling them to do this seven times to remember that it's his power coming and being displayed well what does this have to do with us today i mean kind of awesome that god knocked over that wall back then i mean that's that's impressive what's that to do with us today you don't need to turn with me to matthew 16 i'll just tell you what it says there you may recall that's the passage where jesus asked his disciples who do they say that he is and Peter is able to respond with the correct answer, the, the, the central confession of faith of the Christian church, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? First of all, he tells him that he's going to be a rock, he's going to build the church, but he says something else about that that's kind of a positive thing. Hey, I'm going to build the church on this confession you've made. He tells him that the gates of hell will not prevail against him and the church. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That today, and we saw it, we were thinking about it, meditating on it last week, that the kingdom of God is going forth, that it's breaking through into our hearts and lives and knocking down the walls of hell and evil that are in our souls, that it's going forth out into a lost world, that God is coming with that kind of power. And I've mentioned before, I'll mention again, a set of statistics that's just fascinating to me. In, in our culture, in America today, and in a lot of the West, it feels like the gospel and the Christian faith and influence are sort of receding or drifting back into the background. And I don't know if that's entirely true or not, and certainly God can snap his fingers and turn those things around. But we feel that way, and so it's easy to forget that in about the year uh, 50 A.D. or 100 A.D., they estimate uh, there were one in 400 people in the world claimed the Christian faith. 
But around the year 1900, the Christian faith had actually grown and expanded in, in huge proportions that one in 40 people in the world claimed the name of Christ. That up right into the time that you and I live, into the 80s, the 1980s, one in 16 people in the world were numbered believers. And even in the most recent studies, one in nine people in the world claim Christ. And that's just a very rigid and very strict definition of what a believer might be. Certainly there's a broader group of folks that are somehow attached to the Christian faith beyond that. The point is this. The gospel's not receding in the world. The gospel's preceding. The gospel's going forth. God's doing what he promised to do. The gates of hell being knocked down. Do you and I believe that today? Do you believe do we believe that he can do that work in our lives that his power is knocking down walls in our own hearts and in our own lives that his power is knocking down barriers to the gospel and those around us in our community in our neighborhoods that he's doing that around the world in tremendous ways today do we believe that do we believe that second thing we see in this passage and it's a tough one I'll tell you but we've got to we've got to tackle it at some point here in Joshua is this issue of wrath and judgment Look with me at verse 17. It says, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Jumping down to verse 21, we read it earlier. This is in Joshua 6 again. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. What do we do? What do we do with this reality of what we might call Old Testament wrath of God? That's the first question. And then the second question, which is sort of an answer to the first question, what do we do with all the passages in the New Testament that declare that God still is a God of judgment, of justice, of righteousness, of holiness, who condemns sin, and that can only be rescued from that wrath through His mercy and grace? How do we digest that? What do we do with that message? Well, I've got in your worship guide, I don't know if it's, it would be helpful for you, it's helpful for me, a, a little definition, first of all, for wrath. And, and, and I know, I realize right about now, some of y'all are sort of, you know, if you've brought a visitor with you, you're sort of regretting that you brought that visitor. You're probably, uh, you know, jotting a little note on your worship guide and sticking it over to them that says, you know, he's, he's usually not quite this hellfire and brimstone, but... Uh, but it's actually about to get worse for a couple of minutes here. <laughs> this is sobering stuff. It really is sobering stuff. The wrath of God, and I put this statement on your sheet to help clarify, it's not spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It's never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it's entirely predictable. It's never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. It's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, His settled refusal to compromise with it, and His resolve instead to condemn it. 
Let's look at the, at the bad news in the Old Testament and the bad news in the New Testament so that then we'll get to our third point and we can hear and understand more clearly the good news. It might help us a bit to realize that in the time of the Battle of Jericho, this was certainly common practice. And that doesn't make it right. It just helps us to understand the context. More importantly, it definitely helps us to realize that this was a specific action at this time and place commanded by God for his people to do. And it wasn't even really about them. We saw a week or two ago in Joshua chapter 5 that the angel of God, the commander of his army, comes to Joshua. And you remember, Joshua seems to be looking for some encouragement. All right, the commander of the Lord's army is here. Are you on my side? We're ready to go. Commander of the Lord's army, that angelic being, says no. This reminder that it's, it's not just about some nationalism or some special thing about the Israelites. It's that God was choosing to use them for that time and that place. We see back in Genesis 15, 16, that it even really wasn't about the land either. It was about the people in the land, and it said their sin had not reached the full magnitude. That's what it says in Genesis God's wrath was being displayed. Does the death of what we call non-combatants disturb me? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very disturbing. It's a message screaming loud and clear to us, though, that God is going to do as the creator of all things and the creator of all people whatever he determines to do. And it is just and wrath, as I said, it's not caprice, it's not whim. It's his carrying out of his righteous judgment. And it ought to sober us up to to remind all of us what we deserve outside of the work of Christ. It also ought to compel us to take the gospel to a world that is desperately in need of it. And it also ought to point us to the New Testament. And to the fact that God's continuing. This isn't some aberration. This isn't something we tuck away and the Old Testament was just, that's the way he worked. And now we've got this New Testament God of love. Let me me show you just for a a minute because we shouldn't be confused about that. Matthew 25, you don't need to turn there. Verse 41, Jesus gives the description of the the call of the, the sheep and the goats and the two being separated out. And one has chosen to give a glass of water to visit those in prison. To respond to the gospel in tangible ways. The gospel's working and they're responding and the other has not. And do you remember what Jesus says? This is, this is loving, gracious, kind, merciful. Jesus says to those who haven't responded to the gospel, mercy and love, depart from me into eternal fire prepared for you. I don't have time to read through John chapter 3, but John 3.16, fantastic passage about God's love and how we can receive that love. Guess what's in the verses right after that? It reminds us that those outside of that love stand condemned. And then I'll just read one more passage for you. I guess Revelation, we wouldn't be surprised to find some judgment and wrath, but it is a chapter all about heaven as well. Chapter 6 of Revelation says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals 
and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Now we've got a gracious God. One who forgives, one who shows kindness. But people, we need to have in our understanding of the gospel and in the message that we share with others, the reality of God's uh, judgment, His pouring out of His wrath. I heard a, a week or two ago, uh, one story that helped illustrate this to me and struck home with me, that of the Johnstown, Pennsylvania flood back in 1889. Maybe some of you all are familiar with that story. It was uh, really up until 9-11 the worst uh, disaster in American history as far as the loss of life. Let me share that story with you because I think it gives us a picture of our need for grace. Johnstown was a a medium-sized city. I looked all of this up because the stories both saddened me and fascinated me. And I've got some Pennsylvania roots from just up the road from Johnstown. And so I I wanted to learn about it. And and it was this medium-sized city situated in the steep mountain uh, area of Pennsylvania. In 1889, some of the worst storms that had really ever been experienced in American history came across the central United States and dumped onto this area of Pennsylvania and a massive amount of water. The South Fork Dam was located about 14 miles up the hill from Johnstown, and it held back a two-mile-by-one-mile lake, Lake Honema, that had been established as the Pennsylvania Canal System, but was now at that time being used as sort of a retreat for wealthy uh, folks from Pittsburgh to go up into the mountains. And they had seen the leaks in the dam here and there and done some spotty patching of that dam, which was about 72 feet high and 900 feet wide. People had commented about concerns of what might happen if that dam just actually gave way. But most figured since the town of Johnstown was 14 miles away, surely by the time the water reached that city, it would be down to just a trickle or just a small little bit of flooding. I'll read to you uh, this account one historian gave of what took place. On the morning of May 31st, 1889, In a farmhouse on a hill just above the South Fork Dam, Elias Unger, then president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, that was that wealthy folks club up there, awoke to the sight of Lake Konama swollen after a night-long rainfall. Unger ran outside in the still-pouring rain and saw that the water was nearly cresting the dam. He quickly assembled a team of men who tried to repair and replace portions of the spillway. Twice Unger, twice under orders from Unger, John Park, an engineer from the South Park Club, the same group, rode on horseback to the nearby South Fork community to send telegraph messages down to Johnstown to warn them of the flood that was impending. But the warnings were dismissed. 
when it broke, I should say end quote there, when it broke, 4.8 billion gallons of water were released. And it was later estimated that the force of the flow was equivalent to that of the Mississippi River at full flood stage. It did take 57 minutes for it to reach Johnstown, wiping out everything, the villages along its way, and eventually, as it hit the city, killing 2,209 people, one-third of whom were never identified. And it took three years just to clear away the 30-acre by 70-foot high pile of debris that the flood had carried down. God's wrath, it tells us in Romans chapter 1, is presently, currently being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness. So what do we do? What do we do? My last point, the third one, is the answer to that. We find grace, we find shelter, we find mercy in God. And we proclaim that message as often and as much as we can to a world so that they might escape that wrath as well. Look with me at verse 25. It says simply, but so beautifully, isn't it? But Rahab, and then it reminds us of what we saw a few weeks ago, of who she was and where she came from. It's not about any of us being special people or being particularly righteous. It says, but Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household. Think about this with our baptism today. What a beautiful picture. And all who belong to her, Joshua, saved alive. And then listen to this. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. I'll close with this from Edmund Clowney. Again, this is in your worship guide. Jesus came in the flesh not to bring judgment. We see that he's going to come back in Revelation and bring it. But to bear it. Not to slay with the sword of his lips, but receive the nail in his hands and the spear thrust into his side. In no other way could his kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as in heaven. The kingdom established by grace must advance in grace and then be consummated in glory, not by political power, but by the Spirit in the gospel carried to the nations. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we absolutely need to hear the bad news of your wrath. And, Father, we even want to praise you today that that's part of who you are. It's not some uh, creation of our mind. It's not some uh, idea that we need to tuck away. It's the reality of who you are. And you're right to show judgment upon evil and sin in this world because you're holy and just and we've turned away from you. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us here today. Uh, Let it be that each one of us would have 
put our trust and be resting in the grace of Christ that we might, like Rahab, be spared. And know the joy of coming in to be among your people and your kingdom as well. And Lord, let us be even bolder. Let us be even more committed to participating with you in the work of your kingdom. That for those around the world who need the gospel, for those around our neighborhoods and our workplace, that you would show mercy and you would show grace as they hear and receive the gospel message. That glorious message of salvation that comes only through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.